I don't know what the hell it is, Bill. I've been smoking this pot all day, and I still can't get higher. What kind are you smoking? Well, all marijuana's the same, isn't it? That's the mistake a lot of people make. But not in Vietnam. Well, it was one fine morning, I was knocked out of bed By some dumb rhythm I heard over my head I went into the hall to see what it could be It was a rock and roll uprising all around me Now there's a radio station called WCDN FM Ann Arbor The home of alternative radio radio. radio. <laughs> I sure wish I could get one of those shirts Back in the saddle again Out where a friend is a friend Where the longhorn cattle feed on the lowly jimson weed Back in the saddle again I'm riding the range once more Toting my old 44 where we sleep out every night and the only law is right Back in the saddle again Uppy tie i rockin' to and fro Back in the saddle again Uppy tie i go my way Back in the saddle Yippee-ki-yay-yay, you've got Living Writers, I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, I'm so happy to have here Ron Carlson. Um, Ron, <laughs> welcome to Living thanks, Writers. Thanks. It's great to be here. Thanks for the song. That was sweet. <laughs> Back in the saddle again. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's not your first time in Michigan either, is it? Well, I've been around all, you know, like everybody else. I lived in the east and I lived in the west, so uh, Michigan, uh, sometimes we drive up. at one. I spent a night in Flint on my honeymoon. It's very funny, yeah. That's not usually a, a honeymoon destination. Well, we, were you on your way to no, Niagara Falls I I, or well, we Toronto? We didn't know where we were going. We were young, and we were driving to Connecticut. And, yeah, the day later, we parked in Buffalo, and I looked at my wife, and I said, do you know what's here? Because there we were. And we did go to Niagara Falls, but it was an accident. Just purely because yeah. it was en-, en route. You know what it was? And also, this I've always often thought it would be a good premise for a story because we were there. This is a long time ago. It was so sweet. Two kids. June of 69. And Niagara Falls was closed. I mean, they'd closed the American side. They diverted the what? water. <laughs> Seriously. One of the – it was just dripping. And they put in steel plates. Look, you can look it up. Look in the Time magazine for June of. There's a great picture because when they they diverted the water, they found a bunch of old cars and debris under there, and uh, so we were there in this very special time. And I mean, absolutely as innocent as you get to be in this life. And you see like so, the skeletons of rusted old well, cars it was like and, that. and, 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 and it was, not one of the yeah, wonders of yeah. the world, really. I've been back to Niagara Falls uh, since we're talking about it, and I, it scares me, the power, the, the amount of yes. water. I've been around a lot of waterfalls in the woods uh, of Utah and Arizona and backpacking. Maybe and, even Wyoming. Yeah, exactly. And so it's, uh, but they're all kind of manageable. I mean, they're up in 25, 35, 50 feet but n- not like the m- millions of tons of water that come over that Niagara Falls. It's, so anyway, I'm not sure why we're talking about that, except that, um, yeah, so I've been in Michigan before, and um, I've never been to the Upper Peninsula, which is where I want to go. Yes, that seems like a logical. my heroes. And, yeah, the Two-Hearted uh, River. 
And one of my friends was up there and sent me all this stuff. It, it annoys me because he got there first. Is he? Does he have a like a, a camp there? That no, you could he go went and up visit? on a pilgrimage. He's yeah. he was the professor who was across the office from me when I was at Arizona State University. Huh. And um, anyway, I think everybody makes in one way or other. I've been to. I dug out uh, one of Hemingway's early flats in Paris and walked over there it's unmarked when where he lived with hadley when they had the baby oh the movable feast yeah, time yeah and then i've you know i've done sort of i don't know that due diligence i think you do the due diligence with the books but then in life every once in a while your path actually crosses where where um, when you say due diligence do you mean like f- t- making sure yeah. you try and go on your own pilgrimages just, for what it means yeah, to just you? your research in terms of these writers who are important to you and um and of course, the it's interesting when you're in college, you read about all these mythic figures, and then when you get older and you look back, you think, oh, he was he must have been 35 when that happened, or he was 40. And uh, Hemingway uh, was in a car crash in a Buick in Casper, Wyoming, or near there, and then and he was in Salt Lake a couple times, my hometown. Yes. And because um, you were born in Logan, Utah. Yeah, yeah, I was. Yeah, my dad in... was down there on the GI Bill after the war, and. Uh, so I'm a native Utahan. I I grew up among the Mormons, and uh, I still love Utah. I still have an old house there that I think I might go back to. And um, is it on the old West Side? No, it's not. The West Side of Salt Lake is. I mean, if you're ever in Utah with me, you're going to go to the West Side because I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you every place I skinned one of my knees and come along, uh, listeners. A girl. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> it's a it's a dear place. It's like the old Garden of Eden. My 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 boyhood, which. I thought of as my boyhood, now I see was sort of like the Garden of Eden. It was, uh, I grew up with these guys, and we had a river on one side and railroad tracks on the other and bicycles that we'd all made out of spare parts, and uh, we uh, tried just... Like innocent uh, bike gangs, in a oh, way. Oh, or... it was great. It was just great. Uh, and, Is it still um, like that when you go back, Ron, or... It's what... evolved like every place else. I mean, almost all the places we know in our youth change. I think that's always been true. Um, the remote places change a little less rapidly, and I've lived a couple of places where the wealthy live, and those places don't change because everybody owns it, <laughs> and so nobody puts houses there. But uh, all the little towns um, that I knew uh, scattered through the West, Logan and Salt Lake and Park City and down to Flagstaff and, uh, you know, Santa Fe and They've all they've all evolved and everybody you know the phrases they get found out. Flagstaff is sort of getting found out now, and I have a little house near there. I just love the West, though. I still I live in California now, which and California is California, and it's sort of a special place. But I don't think of it as the West. I think of the West its own as, thing, isn't as it? As the quarter of um, of Northern Arizona. Well, Southern Arizona, too, I guess. Although Arizona, I read, was like the third most urban state by the percentage of population that lives in the cities. So, yeah, there's only five and a half million people, and I think th- more than three or four live in Tucson and Phoenix. Mm. And so... Um, so there is the, the, the wide open spaces are Oh, you can still there. get out of town. That's one of the things I, needed, I need to be able to do is just get out of town. And uh, that sounds like you're go to the um, edge. You're, go to the edge of yeah. the, the edge of a precipice or the edge of time, <laughs> far out of the edge. Well, of I like to get out to where, and that's one of the advantages I see now of living near the ocean is that I used to drive. Uh, I just drove, I did a lot of driving. I've had a lot of road trips. There's nothing 
more sustaining for me than a road trip. And um, and head clearing. I like to get out. I mean, you put me in Moab, Utah at 7 in the morning with a coffee on the bumper of my car while I check the tires. And that's the definition of optimism. And then about, I'm about to start the day. And it doesn't take you long driving either way, north or south, out of Moab. And you can sense that you're on a planet. You can get that sense of the arc and the, the, the hills and... You know, there's a lot of places where it gets obscured either by the sky or by congestion. And I like to be reminded I'm on a planet. So so that's why you said the ocean is good for you now because you can see the at curve times, of the planet, yeah, the, the at, expanse. Yeah, it depends. Sometimes the ocean's like a theme park and sometimes like it's a big, fabulous, unknowable thing. And so it changes for me. It's I, I don't know much about the ocean and I'm not a particularly good swimmer. And I live in a town where... Every block, every day, there are people changing into their wetsuits and headed for the beach. It's just so wonderful, all these young, healthy people. And uh, and I couldn't surf. I don't know. I would uh, – I'd lean <laughs> – I couldn't. I'd hide under the board somewhere. But uh, but that's where the sharks are. So, well, <laughs> I'm not – Yeah, sharks are the least of my danger. Carrying the board over across the beach would be the hard part. But, um, or getting out over the waves, the well, breaking waves, it's, right? it's comical, but I've actually been on a surfboard. And uh, so when you, you go, you say, well, I'll paddle out. Well, best of luck. By the time you paddle out, you, you know, you should get an award. You're exhausted. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but, you're, but it sounds like your life is in the mountains and in knowing the woods. And uh-huh. at least if... Um, I'm thinking the knowledge that you show in this, we have, I should say, on the table, um, your latest novel um, out with Viking 2009, The Signal, um, and your main character, um, Mac, mm-hmm. and his, um, his, his ex-wife, they're, mm-hmm. they're out in the Wyoming wilderness. Right. Um, and so, but you, there's so much knowledge of and respect for knowing a place mm-hmm. in the land. So it seems like that might be... Is that something then that is just an intrinsic part of who you are as a person, well, not just know, as a writer? Is. I think that it always has been. Even I lived in the East. I lived in the manicured hills of right? Connecticut oh. and taught at a prep school winters. And then I'd always had to get to Utah in the summer. I, I like to sleep on the ground a little bit every year. And I'm not particularly – I mean, I would say I'm a really serviceable and uh, – utility camper. I mean, I know how to do it. You'd, you'd like to go camping with me. and We're not going to forget stuff. It's not going to be four stars, but it'll be reasonable. I'm good with fires. I'm good with water. and um, But I'm not the, the top-notch one of these uh, great... Uh, I, I, I could survive, I think, on my own terms. But uh, yeah, so I like the outdoors. I like... I, I've been a school teacher all my life, so I spent a lot of time indoors and um, working with young people. And so... When I can, and I schedule some time to, um, I, I get out. I go into northern Utah, uh, southern, southern. Uh, I like the Wind River Mountains, which is where this book is set. But I spend a lot of time in the Uinta Mountains of Utah, which is a very strange little mountain range. It's the only mountain range in the United States, they say, that runs east and west. And it's right there beneath that little shelf of missing Utah, the bite that Wyoming takes out of Utah. Oh, right. Yeah, and so, um, and it runs from just about 150 miles east of Salt Lake all the way almost to the state 
state line. And so, do they know? Because you you studied at least in high school geology, um, and and so was it something like the Earth dropped, and so there was like these mountains, and so there well, was a natural reason I there could was tell a light. You, I could tell you the vivid story of a couple of mountains because it's re- it's right before you, okay. where the where the continent broke. And Grizzly Ridge, uh, which is at the very eastern end of the, those mountains. Oh, that's a great name. It broke, and you can see the shelf. And uh, why it broke and why the pressures were north and south, I don't know. But, um, of course, the Continental Divide and all of the Rocky Mountains run, run north and south there. And that's, where the wind, that's what the Wind Rivers do. And the Wind Rivers are a much more raw, wild place and taller, too. I mean, a more... Um, it's more significant mountain range than the Uintas, but um, I grew up in Utah, and my dad took me fishing at Spirit Lake on the northern slope of the Uinta Mountains when I was six and seven and eight, and um, I still am at Spirit Lake every other year now. And, it's like uh, a touchstone for you. I'll be somewhere in there in October this year, up around there, and um, there's I could tell. I, don't start me on these stories because. <laughs> Uh, but we got time. But uh, yeah, so this book was finally I turned and turned all my attention after writing nine books of all kinds. Um, I decided to write a novel that used that world and uh, create a character Mac who he's actually better at stuff than I am. He's, he's a much better fisherman, well, he even sounds... though he says he isn't. And uh I, mean, I can, can cook the... as well as he can, oh. but barely. <laughs> you know, you give me a fire and a fire and pad. I'm a fry man. I'm a good short order guy. But um, so it was a privilege to write this book. I just it was such a pleasure. You write books for all kinds of reasons. And I wanted to write a book which had a powerful inner story about these two people, but really used the world in, in the ways that I wanted. So and almost uh, it seems like you're honoring that that world mm-hmm. and what it takes to to know it and be in it. Mm-hmm. it it's and the relationship with Mac and his father are lovely moments. I wonder mm-hmm. if that's. It sounds like there might be echoes that you were drawing from from your own father, right? With well, those early trips, I think trips. that I'm interested. My father and I've been. I was lucky to know a lot of interesting men and in the generation ahead of me, and um, of all levels of education, who were kind and who always who had a code about their tools, about their job, about their their love of recreation, their, the way they treated women, um, all quiet without saying it. You know, I'm a guy who has, I have a lot of words. You're a talker. Well, I can talk. <laughs> but in a good way. <laughs> I can talk. But what you need is somebody who, who, who like when I watch them, it, it's just a privilege to incorporate them in, in, in that book. And um so I had a lot of mentors who were quiet and who did it by example. And then, of course, as you, in literature, there are a lot of characters, both men and women, who have uh, codes. I was always amused at the beginning of the first half of The Sun Also Rises, Hemingway's first novel, where Jake sort of pays for everything. People drive a cab, cab and he always gets it. And I, uh, the whole idea of of who picks, who gets the check, and who covers it, and who takes care of his friends, and and uh, anyway, it just so between life and art, I wanted to try to make a book. I wanted actually to make a book that when you read it, it would make you want to get out your sleeping bag. And um, well, you've succeeded. Yeah, thanks. And so that was that was the urge and the signal. And I've been so gratified with the with the. Uh, you know, the reaction to the book and 
So it's been fun to go around and read from. And well, let's t- let's take a short break, and when we come back, will you read some for us? Oh, sure. And we'll hear some. Okay, you're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Ron Carlson. We'll be right back. Well, it ain't no use to sit and wonder why, baby. If you don't know by now. And it ain't no use to sit and wonder why, baby. It'll never do somehow. When your rooster crows at the break of dawn, look out your window and I'll be gone. You're the reason I'm a traveling on But don't think twice, it's all right And it ain't no use in the turning on your light, babe The light I never knowed and it ain't no use in turning on your light, babe I'm on the dark side of the road But I wish there was something you would do or say To try and make me change my mind and stay But we never did too much talking anyway But don't think twice, it's all right Welcome back. If you're just joining us, you've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Ron Carlson. And I'd like to say thanks quickly to Brian Delaney uh, for making us sound good, playing the cowboy tunes and the Bob Dylan. Um, <laughs> I, I read online there was a great, what was it, teen, teenreads.com, where there's a sweet interview that you've answered some questions. I don't know if you remember. It was back for when you did Speed of Light yeah, in Speed of Light. 2003. Right. Your young young adult yeah. novel. Yeah. Um, That's the book about my boyhood. Those three boys in the last summer of their friendship. Oh. Three 12-year-olds who have... Uh, yeah, and they invent all the. Uh, they invent everything. They invent baseball and sex and science. Well, as you and, must, right? Yeah, yeah, when you're yeah. at twelve. Yeah. So, and I did an interview. What did it say? Well, there was a moment where they said, "What's your favorite album?" And you said, "Free Wheelin'" by Bob Dylan. Oh, right. So that's why we're going to be piping some of that. Well, in there. when I was a senior, when I was a senior in college, we had two albums. I lived with a guy named Roger Day, and he was a brilliant guy who's gone off to have a wonderful life, but. Um, Hello, our Roger. Par- our, yeah, our apartment was crazy, and uh, we had two albums, and one was Hair, and one was Freewheeling. And, and, Let's get some hair on, I remember when we had those, and instead of writing our names on the album, Roger wrote on them, Finders Keepers. So it was like, you know, 1969. So uh, fun. Oh, that is great. Um, and yeah. before you drove out yeah, through past that, that whole Flint, winter, Niagara, that, that whole winter, it was, uh, I wrote that. Um, there's a novel, my first novel, which some people are just optioning for film, and I wish them all the luck, was published in uh, 1977. It's called Betrayed by F. Scott Fitzgerald. And it's a sweet, great title. sweet book about the disaffection and affection. It's really a love letter to college. And how how difficult it is and how rocky and full of mourning getting out of college is. And um, 
it's all set in the West. There's actually some fishing in it. <laughs> so anyway. After uh, reading the signal, I feel like you you probably have a yeah. fishing cameo in almost everything. Well, it seems like that, but not <laughs> quite. Well, actually, there's fishing in five skies, and uh, I don't know what else there is. Um, but... Uh, yeah, so anyway, that's... Do you I, know Jim Harrison, too? I met Jim Harrison once. I was oh. lucky. And he's really a terrific writer. I mean... And talk about he, the UP. Right? Yeah, like he's, he's a, a person who's set, who, just with his muscularity, he was he had, he was both muscle and poetry. Yes. And so, and he's set... Um, I mean, there's a great deal of permission in his work. That like, When I read it, and I've read maybe six or seven of his books, and I just got another one about the... Uh, I think it's called The English Major. It is. And um, I, do, yeah, I love him. I admire him so much. And and and, and do you? Yeah, he's 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 an American. Yeah, um. yeah, he's a force of nature, really. <laughs> yeah, force of the, nature, and I mean that the force, the force, and the nature. And I think he's a great appreciator of life. And I think he's full of wonder. And he's kind of been damaged by the way people behave, and astounded. And and he, I don't know. I just think he's. Uh, He's a real conscience, and I could say a lot about it, but yeah, and I, I think, appreciate him. I think he can shoot rattlesnakes in his driveway, and, yeah, you know, he's yeah. he's up there yeah, with exactly, us. <laughs> exactly. He's going to be tough, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and, and so you mentioned poetry, so I wanted to ask you about that, because it said that you wrote poems in high school mm-hmm. as well, like when you were studying right. geology and physics, and yeah. are you still, is it something that as a writer, um, at least on on record from what I've seen, you've got the love of short stories, many mm-hmm. short story collections, these novels, um, the short, the, the young adult novel. Um, mm-hmm. so are you writing poems too? Uh, what you're That's writing funny. everything? Well, you, the answer is yes. And I, but the poems are, um, I'll just say this. My mother was a wit. She was, uh, self-educated. Um, she's actually the valedictorian of the eighth grade, uh, Brown County, South Dakota, 1938. I have this great picture of her and a hundred other kids, and she's standing in front with a bouquet of roses. But um, she was a famous in Utah, famous contester in the 50s. Contester. She entered contests, 25 words or less, and she won stuff. And she won my bicycle, and she won records, and she won a hi-fi. We had a hi-fi, and one of the records she she won. Uh, I remember all these records, uh, Flower Drum Song and Martin Denny's Jungle Sounds and uh, Dave Brubeck Take Five. And we had this uh, this huge, I mean, I'm, I'm, it's wonderful to be in this radio station surrounded by albums again. But so she was, and know, she was very successful some... and she won a lot of money. She, uh, seriously, she, um, and so she was very, very clever. All I was, I was, I suffered quips and puns all my youth. And uh, if it's a, made you who you are today, if a word Ron. could be turned sideways, she did it. And there's nobody who loved words more. I've met all kinds of professors and traveled in university circles, but she loved those words. And she uh, continued in puzzles and um, and writing puzzles and being parts of a puzzle and cryptic societies until she passed away in 2001. I miss her, but oh. she's the influence on my poetry. So. A lot of my poems are wordplay, and um, they um, – so I have this book. I wrote a book, and actually I'm going to call the book – I came up with a title on the airplane coming to Michigan, and it's called My Work um, – My Recent Work on the Time Machine. 
And so, uh, because I realize that's what it is. And some of them are prose poems and statements, and um, they're all kinds of things. And uh, I don't know what to say about them, but I'm not going to stop writing them. Do you have some with you today, Ron? Do you have any of the... I do. I do have some with me. And uh, well, maybe I'll... think about reading sure. one sure, or yeah, so. Sure, yeah, I have a short one that. here. That would be lovely. Uh... Okay. Well, should we hear it first, shall we? And then we'll go to the signal, a piece from the signal. Well, um, um, yeah, I'll just oh. grab it. Oh, that, okay. um, that, sounds, that sounds great. And while you're doing that, um, much delayed, I will read your short bio that's in the back of the novel The Signal, out with Viking 2009. Um, here we go. Ron Carlson is the author of four story collections and four novels, most recently, Five Skies. His fiction has appeared in Harper's, The New Yorker, Playboy, and GQ. His work has been featured on NPR's This American Life and Selected Shorts and in Best American Short Stories and the O. Henry Prize Stories. He is the director of the UC Irvine Writing Program and lives in Huntington Beach, California. And his heart is in Utah. <laughs> I think that's right. I think that's right about my heart. The um, now, I'm always um, as a writer, you're you create the habit for yourself of um, scribbling, and um, so odd bits don't get away. So sometimes it's just a word or a phrase or an observation and. And you've got notebooks. And I have notebooks. Well, they're folders now, and I love hard copy. I'm not a big uh, computer guy. I love the computer as a production tool, but I'm not sure it's a creative tool. And um, I worry about computers a little bit in that um, we've all succumbed to this national phenomena of email and so on. And it's difficult to... um, it's difficult for a writer. I mean, when I when you write on a typewriter, I know this is an old uh, and hackneyed story, but I wrote six books on a typewriter, and a typewriter is a device that only has one way. It, it comes, propels you. It really you, you have your mind. From your mind, it goes through your fingers and through the machine and comes out. Nothing comes in the other way. There's no mail. There's no Google. There's no nothing coming in. And so you're alone, and being alone is the condition which we're losing of course. And so when you're alone, sometimes you can find out what you're thinking. And when I read your book, that's what I want in that book. I want to find out what you were thinking. I don't want to know what everyone was thinking all the time. And the buzzing that's happening around. We have this 24-7, and I think this would be a much better country if it was, oh, like four, eight, if we were open four days a week and it was only eight hours each day. And then we all had to go away and be quiet. Um, that doesn't sound half bad, Ron. <laughs> well, it's not. It, it's a great idea. It's not going to happen. Now, um, what I'm going to read is this prose page. Okay, this this bridges the gap between my lyric work and my, um, and it's also set in a place in Utah, northeastern Utah, um, about 35 miles north of Vernal. Uh, I have a little cabin at 8,500 feet, and so this is called Utah Cabin. Utah Cabin Under Heaven, July 3rd. Today is insect day in the world, and the sun has invented all these creatures who now work ceaselessly in the grasses and trees surrounding the cabin. The bees, ten kinds of bees, some who whistle or is it sizzle as they bump against the eaves in some kind of labor, and the flies, twenty kinds, some very small who still retain the ability to bite, 
and the gorgeous and feared housefly, the gorgeous and feared horsefly on my shoelaces, standing there in twenty blinking facets, rubbing her forearms together as if rolling up her sleeves for the duties to come, and the little beetles, narrow as exclamation points, but less excited, and the one hornet all alone dragging his golden quotation mark legs through the air looking for a mate so they could quote something. And the butterflies, through whose wings the sun shines completely, orange and brown, and flying in hiccups, or so it seems, to the inept human observer. The sun doesn't shine through many parts of his human body, maybe the shellbacks of his ears, but it doesn't shine through his ribcage, which he so desires. The trillion ants are imperturbable, they don't act like it is crowded, and the glistening black ants walk around like dogs, some of them wearing leashes and shiny colors. When the human spilled grape jam on the kitchen counter, suddenly there was an ant. He'd found the mother load, and he nosed the jam and then circled the sink to tell his three buddies back by the wall. The human interrupted their plan, and when he swiped them carefully up in a paper towel, they came popping out of it with a skill that goes back a millennium, survivors, but they were escorted thus quickly to the front lawn. Certainly they regathered there, all four of them, and the three asked the one with the purple mouth, What did it taste like? Is it really good? The human knows that he will see them again. And there is the little quick gray spider in the bathtub who always comes out when the human appears. The gray spider wants to see who's messing and who the hell cleaned up all the flies. Does the human think he killed them for nothing? He's late for lunch. It is a day of insects, but a human being needs to stand still to see them. To look at the ground is to see a cosmos in motion. There's an ant climbing a long blade of grass, three inches, and then disappointed at the top, he climbs down. He thought this elevator went to the tenth floor. He hoped actually it went up to the hummingbird feeder from which the drop of sugar he'd chased had fallen. On hands and knees, the human can raise his gigantic head and see the far hills, grizzly ridge, embedded with red rocks like jewels in a crazy present for the king, and between where his hands rest in the dirt and those rocks, there are unlimited creatures blessing the earth, uncannable motions in brief lives, and the human wishes with his human heart, which is an imprecise instrument, that he could find God here, that God would appear, but he may have. The human heart may not be the right tool for the job. It's like trying to paint a picture with a drum or something. The human knows he loves this world and that his sadness is a blessing of some kind which will either be revealed to him or not. But he will use the days to breathe and to call himself to mindfulness some of the time. Thank you, Ron. Thank you. Yeah, so sometimes... Um, you, when you get in a meditation, some of the poems are like that. They, it's a page. It looks like paragraphs. It's a meditation. And it is, and you try to uh, stop and look quietly at, or you sing with some kind of singularity at a thing. And um, others are, um, are odd takeoffs on phrases. So I wrote a poem on um, closing the barn door after the horse is gone. Like, why wouldn't you close the, you know, it's your barn. You want to close the door. The horse is gone. <laughs> It's not leaving the door open. Just people are going to say, "Hey, your barn door's open," <laughs> and the horse isn't coming back. I mean, I so I just I spent my life around language too, and so uh, and I think as with the people I've met here, the writers I've met in Michigan, uh, there's a care and attention to certain phrases that we nobody takes anything for granted. We, we're inventing and defining all the time, so. Anyway, thank you, and thank you for reading that for us because we have a little bit of Utah. 
comes right, in. Right. Because with the signal, we'll be going back to Wyoming, another landscape. But did you write this um, on a typewriter? In the cabin? Well, I have the old. I have an old IBM typewriter in that cabin that I bought at auction from the Vernal Rodeo years ago when they changed to. Uh, they went to computers, and I had that. It cost me seventy-five dollars, which was. But these IBM correcting selectrics. Listen, when I found my first, my mother gave me a typewriter with that correcting key. It was the IBM Selectric, and as soon as you could correct a letter, I thought, no way. That's too good because I wrote six books on a typewriter where you'd be writing along and you'd want to write the word affection, but then you'd start the you'd strike the word L, or or you'd strike or you strike the letter P, and you just sat there until you find a word that meant affection that started with P. Because oh, that's you, what you did. Oh, of course. Oh, my hands my hands are much smarter than my head. Or you could backspace, right? Oh, no. so you trusted that. No, you. I would have you, started out. If you were going to write the word affection and you started with P, you'd sit there, and the word you came up with was always a better word. And now, search and replace, that's horrible. It's horrible for people to be able to so easily uh, change people's names and change words. and So there's some kind of our bodies and our instincts and our hands somehow know. You know, Wendell Berry, the writer, said the great thing. He said, my hands are smarter than my head. Mm. And they call it a manuscript. I mean, we make it with our hands. Mm. And so if you um, – I mean, anyway, the computer is – it's a great with great ease. And we make my, – my students make such beautiful manuscripts. They're so – they're double-spaced and they're so handsome. But um, – and that's been going on for years, but and the pages lie so flat. Yeah, Whereas if you're coming yeah, from like a typewriter of yeah. different, they've kind of curled through something, and they're mm-hmm. they're already. I can't imagine individual that, that um, <laughs> people would like to go into a room with a typewriter. It's pretty scary. You go into the room with a computer. Oh, look! There's everybody I know, every place in the world, all at once. First of all, I can Google Earth, and then I can Facebook, and uh, it's no help. It's the enemy. I mean, the the point of writing a book or doing writing is to find out what you're thinking. And so, a person, she need or he needs to um, figure out a way to find out what you're thinking. And without knowing it, and a lot of things got it. in the way. And so, I, I never don't see anybody walking alone anymore. There's never a man or a woman walking under a tree the way you used to see. That's all gone now. Everybody's got their phone to their ear and um, or their. Uh, thumbing their screens and it's um i worry it's hard to be you know when i was 15 i was alone a lot i mean i didn't have a phone when the phone rang in my house it was not for me i had a few friends i watched a little television there was no incoming there was no noise my teachers were trying to tell me things which i was resisting i taught you know i was there i was alone goofy thinking you were with your mind yeah and so it wasn't every um I knew how to, you know, so anyway, without, I didn't particularly want to be alone, but I was alone. I talked to myself. My teachers and my report cards, it said to my parents, Ronnie talks to himself. Could you do something about that? But, you know, was that as part of your participation I, oh no, grade? It was, or was, it was it? my total apprenticeship as a writer. Exactly. So. Let's take a short break, Ron. Um, and we, we'll, we'll talk to each other okay, <laughs> or to ourselves. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Um, we'll be right back. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel today on the program, Ron Carlson. And when we come back, we'll hear some of his latest, the novel, The Signal. We'll be right back. I was looking in here for that. I'll go on riding alone, riding. 
Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, you've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Ron Carlson is here. He's in town. Um, Maybe some of you got lucky and you heard his reading at the Art Museum. Um, But for the rest of us, um, Ron, you're going to read a little little piece. Well, the the signal signal. is about Mac, and he's grown up now, and his parents are gone, and he's trying to hold on to his little ranch, the ranch that he has, which has been a guest ranch. And um, he's going – the whole book, the current story is about a six-day backpacking trip he takes with his ex-wife. As they're both, he's trying to recover for something, and she just goes along to help him. She's a friend of his. And was that you, a natural structure, Ron, for the book? Like when you were, when the story was coming to you, or as you were sketching mm-hmm. it out, did it fall into those days? Like was that a natural structure? It was. I just started writing. The first sentence was that he arrives at the trailhead in the late day, and like so much work, I, I mean, I've I've arrived at trailheads. Okay, you get out, and if you're going to backpack then you you have your vehicle there and you unpack and you sort your gear and it's just i can't stand it it's so pleasurable just doing putting your stuff in your pack and making sure you've got your fishing gear and lining things up and, and you're the gonna keys sp- on the rear tire yeah, yeah. you're gonna spend one night on the um one night there with a little camp and then go on the next morning so I wrote that left what i call left foot right foot step by step carefully because i wanted to convince myself the old notion of creative writing is you write what you know, and that, that that has so many meanings. But what you do is what I do, rather, not what anybody else should do. But what I do is I start with what I know because it helps me believe in the moment. And then I write toward – slowly, slowly, I write toward what I don't know. And pretty soon I have a world in inventory – and it takes a while, and that's the, that's the real rush and joy, and I think perhaps truth of fiction. So, um, 
Yeah, the natural structure of the six days came to me, and I just took, I had such pleasure with the mornings, noons, and nights, and the campfires, and the uh, discussion the two people have. They're estranged, and they're tender, and sort of sore, and um, so it was a bit of a dance. But in this little section I'm going to read, Mac is talking about, or we remember that he was on the ranch as a teenager, and his father warned him about... um, just being careful with the other kids who are around. And he says, um, so he meets with his father in the guest house, or in the father. He says, uh, his father called him into the big house, and they sat in the small front office that their bookkeeper used two days a week. He came out, and his father swiveled the oak chair to Mac, and they talked. The room was cloistered by the varnished pine shelves full of books, his father's collection of Zane Grey and Jack London and Western history and beaten and a beaten tin umbrella stand full of rolled maps. These kids look up to you, his father said. I don't know, Max said. He sat on the dark leather hassock orphaned from its long-lost chair. Yes, you do. They should look up to you. You're a good hand. They're not used to this. All they've got is their car and the junior prom. You're an exotic item, Mac. Okay, the boy said. But what we are to these people is sort of a cliché. They come out here to taste this, and it's good for all of us. But these girls, some of them, are going to fall for you, you big, strong cowboy. His father tapped Mac's knee with his two fingers. Come on, you can look at me. I know you're a good kid. Some of these gals from New York even come after your old man, a little fling out west for a week. You want to be a cliché? No, sir, Mac said, I don't. You need me to recount the history of Sheridan the racehorse? No, sir, please. His father smiled. Have you recovered from that lesson? He'd taken the boy to witness their only thoroughbred, Sheridan, at stud when Mac was nine years old. No, sir, Mac said truly. No one could recover from that. Mac went on and repeated what his father had said that day. That's enough of the birds and bees for one boy. Well, good, his father said. We won't be cliches then. That's all I expect. And I know you know what to do. Talk the day with these kids and riding and horses and weather and then send them back to supper. Don't walk with them or have them out near the bunkhouse. My eyes are right here. I know you know what to do. I don't want this business venture we're in to hurt you, boy. I love you and I love this place. Do you know it? Yes, sir, I do. Show me your hands. Mac leaned and held his hands out and then turned them over. They'd always done this, a show of hands. His father looked him over, nails, cuticles, knuckles, palms. You could tell a good ranch hand by the number of nicks. The fewer, the better. And as the years passed, Mac's hands cleared up. His father squeezed his hands now and said, That's enough of that. Quite a talk for the old homestead. You go. Get to work. Thank you, Ron. I'm, I'm so happy that you yeah. chose a scene with the father as well. Those right. moments working in flashback are so... Um, because the father is what all that is good right. that Mac yeah. wants and has been failing, like with even though he wants. He's to, a troubled guy, and to so to have right. to have a north star, to have a guiding light or whatever you call it, even you know and that code. Men are mixed. Men have all kinds of light and shadow, but in memory, a father becomes a beacon of kinds, and, and clearer and clearer as the years go by. So, Is that how your father then I is to you, so. Ron? Well, he was, it was interesting because uh, my father was an engineer and ran a company with my two brothers. They worked night and day with each other. I fled. I went far away when I was 19, 20 years old and started teaching school. Did you go to Alaska then? No, I, that... went to, uh, I went to Connecticut from oh, Arizona. Right. Okay. And I was in Alaska later, but the... Um, 
then I, uh, and so because I wasn't working with him, I sort of got him as a friend. And for the last 30 years of his life, we were the closest friends. We traveled together. So he, he went to writers' conferences with me. He might have come here with me if he'd been alive. We went to a writers' conference at Lake Atasca, and he would go to the poetry readings, and we'd sit on our bunks like two kids at camp afterward and talk about the poems. It was, it was really interesting. And he wrote several books and published them for our, our family, including one that um, is very popular in northeastern South Dakota called Look Back Once in a While about uh, his one-room schoolhouse in the 30s. And uh, the title comes from um, what his father told him about how you learn to plow a field straight because it's hard. And the way you do, the way you stay straight and not ruin the field with the plow is you look back once in a while, and that keeps you straight. And so oh, anyway. That's so <laughs> – what a metaphor. Yeah. No, it was uh, – he was a brilliant guy. and But we were good buddies. We had um, – anyway, I, I miss him terribly. But uh, – so, yeah, Mac, Mac has this uh, – like I said – I'm interested in, uh, for lack of a better word, a kind of honesty, uh, uh, where the true light and shadow, people make mistakes. We know that. And I'm very interested in how that's not the end of somebody, how how uh, there's all kinds of language in recovery now, et cetera. And I, I'm not interested in using that. But Well, I'm, Mac has a few, like a few weeks in jail that yeah. actually gives him the time. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly – it's just after that that the book begins. And so, um, yeah, so – So redemption isn't too strong of a word, like trying to grapple with it's that. It's an interesting word, isn't it? Redemption, redeem, redeem. I don't know. It's it, it, People use it. I've seen it in reviews and so on. But um, it's – I don't think we ever – I don't think there's ever one specific answer. I think I think life's a work in progress, and that's what I wanted to reflect here, that um, I'm an optimist, okay, and I hope um, I'm not a cynic. I'm trying to be frank with my work, and I think there's a lot in my stories and novels of, of uh, shadow and darkness, I guess, but I try to make that honest too. So um, Max struggles. I mean, there's... Being in the out of doors, it's. I think of the signal as a very, um, I don't know what to say, bright book. I mean, there's a lot of daylight in it, and when it rains, there's a lot of good rain in it. And I tried very hard to uh, make the rain convincing, you know. So, yes. Yeah, well, when they're under the canopy of trees, there's uh-huh. this lovely moment where you sort of get lulled into thinking because that's when the relationship they're kind of uh-huh. they're having more of a tender moment then. Right. But then that's the moment where everything kind of falls out from them and some of the danger really right. presents itself. Right. Right. Um, but with the dead bodies of the, the carcasses of the, yeah, elk, the elk, right? And yeah. then, um, is there, cause it, there's an interesting thing that runs through the story where, um, between Mac and, um, Vani, um, the storytelling that starts when he's a, a boy and entertaining the kids right. on the ranch, the story of Hiram, right, the, right. the, the, the hermit slash cannibal, yeah, but he just yeah. wants to feel people's hearts. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Um, and I wondered, is that maybe, is that something, that story that runs through and the intimacy of storytelling, um, uh, it's it's almost like you're, you're showing your love for stories, mm-hmm. but is it a balancing of, of Mac's character because he's also set up to be such a liar, even if he's a bad liar? Mm-hmm. This, this well, story I, that can be true, which I is think, a story. I think stories... When I put that in, and it comes right after the section I just read, Mac tells a story that he'd heard about Hiram, who was in the woods, and 
who snuck into the campfires, uh, the camps of the fishermen and listened for a beating heart in his loneliness. Um, that was just a bonus. I wrote it, you know, I, come on. I mean, after all this talk, the truth is I love a story. I mean, you can take it all away. You can take all of the, all of the uh, speaking about elements of craft and elements of theme and all the great notions of in the big fields of literature. And I'm going to be standing there alone with, not alone with lots and lots of people. We love a story. Bring on. And so I wrote that story. And then because I was right, because I didn't know where I was going with this book. And so many times when I write a story, I plunge in only with the initial idea uh, some kind of event or something I'm trying to describe. And so my motto has become, because I don't know where I'm going, why would I hurry? And so because I'm never hurrying, I find a lot of things. And so what I found was this story. And then, of course, the second night it comes up and he says to her in their way of talking, he says, do you want a story? And she, he says, she said, oh, the story you told about the cannibal. And he says, he wasn't a cannibal. He was lonely. And then she says, no, no story. And then later they get in enough trouble that she says, yeah, can I have a story? And then there's something real about that exchange. And I don't know what to say about it now. I didn't, I don't think of it as a literary issue. I think of it as a human issue. So, uh, but yeah, so I was glad to get that. And then I noticed, then I kept thinking, oh, uh, I've got this wonderful element that's going to come along under the boat the whole way, the story of Hiram as it evolves, and it's in there four or five. And in a way, it comes up at the end of the book and helps me bring the book in for a landing. So I was, that was fortunate. That was a good, uh, you find an element, you think, I'm going to, you know, it's like, it's like giving a character a certain trait, such as uh, an ability to play the cello, and then that's going to go through the whole story. Or Well, it's moments like this, like it probably, it, it, it's not as if you were um, making a literary moment out of it, but it's something that was there and that became um, this this symbol between these two characters mm. that you found because it's a trust thing mm. somehow. Mm. And it does, that story, when he last tells it, that's this moment where you feel almost like these characters are unified in a way again or healed in some way mm-hmm. together. Not right. that everything's going to be sunny or rosy no, for them, no. but there's something, and it's because of that story. Well, and it's not yeah. like you're pounding it in. It's just its presence, I think. That's a nice way to say it. I think that something's happened, and I'm not sure exactly how to reduce it. They are closer in some way, and there's a greater understanding between them. And I've had people tell me, you know, interpret the book uh, all kinds of ways, where they say, oh, that's so great they got back together, <laughs> or, or that's too bad. And it's... Uh, well, you leave it open. I yeah, think you well, can it's not. I think that I, I, I guess you could say I leave it open, except I have a very clear thing. Like, as you said, something's happened. And this experience, you can't go through an experience with someone without, and you don't need to explain it. You don't need to say. Um, but then, of course, being a writer is tricky because I I went into a thrift store in Los Angeles last year and when I walked in, I loved this thrift store because some guy had been going in there and giving them shirts my size. So, and it was great. Perfect. So, yeah. That's like the, and that's actually, a gold rush. <laughs> I have these astonishing feet and I also found some shoes. And a broken toe here. Yeah, yeah, You're yeah, here yeah, with a broken yeah, toe yeah. with your astonishing foot. So uh, what happened was I would go into this whenever I was in Los Angeles. It was the Cancer Society's thrift store. So 
I went in there anticipating getting more wonderful shirts, and um, sometimes it was uh, they were seven dollars, and sometimes they were two for seven dollars, and you never knew. Uh, these beautiful, these gorgeous shirts by this brilliant man who had ever worn them in the first place. But um, there was a guy in there who was buying a table. There was a table in the whole room. We couldn't even. I said, and so he just bought this table, and he couldn't get it home. And they didn't know how to work the dolly. And I totally got involved with him. And he lived. He, I didn't know where his truck was. No, he lived five blocks. So I ended up going with his dolly up the sidewalk with the table. And see, okay, so that's fine. I mean, that's the kind of thing. My dad was a welder, and people would bring broken boat trailers over to the house in the morning, and he'd spend the day fixing a boat trailer. In the morning, in the evening, that thing would be fixed. I lived in a house where things got better. And so now, but he didn't go write a story about it. And so it's just odd sometimes, I think, where uh, I um, have these encounters, and um, they turn out to be stories. So it's the way I've lived my life. Um, I'm just saying that it seems like a writer's way, like a way of seeing something. And mm-hmm. I'll ju- I'll just quickly say before we, I'd like us to keep going, Ron. Mm-hmm. But um, just your, I want. Well, and, I've, and, loved, and I've loved having these words. I've loved having words for things. I've loved being able to make stories. But at the same time, I wonder what it would be like to go like a month and just deny access. Say, I'm just going to be a human being. I'm not going to be aware. I'm not going to. I'm not going to give words to anything. And like how? Because it's it's something that's like a transmission, isn't it? Like yeah. not not to make a play on the yeah. si- to get back to the signal. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> but it's like almost like you're without choice you're mm-hmm. processing things like the images that are coming in well, when and i the talk language. on the telephone or like talking to you now with my friends we talk in stories we say um e- even if it's talking say i i spoke to the like the my the i i go to this old post office in downtown Huntington beach and i know the people there and i i could tell you a story about each one of them but when i I went the other day, and the, the one woman had cut her hair. So we were talking about that and the new stamps. And so when I, in the evenings when I sort of recount the day, that wonderful debriefing you do with a friend or two, there's stories. There's always mm-hmm. stories. And nothing like car trouble for a story. I mean, my battery went dead in Huntington Beach, and I just moved there, and I thought, where, where do I live? I was nervous about where I lived. And I was also, I got out in my car, and the battery was dead. And so I didn't know what to do. I didn't have AAA yet. I was new. I was scared of being late for a meeting. And so what I did is I took my jumper cables and I stood in the middle of the street. <laughs> and that's all I did. And this guy came immediately. And he did a U-turn and pulled up. And we almost we didn't even have to talk. And he got me started and that was it. And uh, later in the day, I someone said, well, how are you doing? I said, well, I moved to the right town. <laughs> and so... But everything is a story. And I, I, I think there's something very true about that. I don't think there's some necessarily a feat or um, literary. No, so. no. Well, and that makes sense if – I mean, that makes sense even from the very beginning. I feel like um, we've been also talking about Hemingway and um, – I think you have uh, to be careful with your stories. I mean – What do you mean? I, well, I think I, – I mean, people can be profligate. Well, I think that – well, like when you meet new people – you meet a person and you you start to exchange stories. 
And sometimes pieces you, you, of you. Sometimes you pull out. You say, "Oh, this is that card. I'm pulling out the high school card." Or, and I sort of I, what I try to do is not. I try to deal new cards. I mean, I'm not making up new stories, but I'm very uh, careful about. Uh, I mean, I try to tell fresh, new stories because I think I'm evolving. Anyway, it's it's an interesting thing. I don't. I'm not. Uh, well, you I, I don't understand that in your... it at all, except I, I love, like, I've met a lot of people here at the university, and um, I noticed, you know, we tell the stories about where they were, uh, what they did, um, like that. But you can tell when they've said it so many times instead of what's the story that's coming yeah, for you yeah. and that moment of exchange. Yeah, and married couples have their stories, and they tell them in certain ways, you know. Oh, we went to Europe, and the pa- lost passport story, and the stolen Levi story, and... The terrible restroom story, you know. Uh, but it's it's interesting that you're saying that these are the stories that you're telling and how you're connecting mm-hmm. with people. Mm-hmm. But also, um, that's in the writing. You expect somehow the stories in the writing, your writing life, to be evolving in some way. Oh, they are. They do. So you go how in do different you see, rooms. But how do you see that? And is it strange, like, if you're doing the doing the work, Ron, of writing, is it strange to then try and look at the at the body of work that came before Be- mm-hmm. because you you hosted um just to throw this in this interesting fact books and company on KAET in Arizona the oh. public television for uh-huh. six seasons and so yeah. at that point you were talking a lot about people's works and the ideas mm-hmm. and you're teaching at in the PhD program right. at Irvine now yeah. so you're you're quantifying and you're you're much, and so to look at your own work like that but also be evolving without trying to guide like how do you reconcile that like the well, evolving you do, without writer, guiding it uh, i do what i work in i work in the mfa program at uci and the um we have a nifty little program there and i um i was going to say that you um oh I, that put me off the off the rail but you Tell, I mean, what happens to me is that um, all my stories come from germs of, of moments, little moments. That, um, and so people, I think part of the currency of, of human interaction is stories. We don't, I mean, it's not just our resume, it's stories. And I'm very interested, as a writer, you evolve. I think through seasons in your life and you go, it's not that you get better as a writer. All of a sudden your language goes from eight to nine. What happens is your concerns shift. You have children or the children grow or you get divorced or someone dies or someone gets better or you move to someplace and uh, those things. And so the, the concerns in your life evolve. And if you're, you know, writing in a way, when we're thinking about it, is, is a way of measuring our lives. And we're imprecise instruments. We do the best we can. And it's hard because there are a lot of other writers indicating what are the patterns, what are the, what are the models, what are the paradigms for the way we measure. And those paradigms, we've got to go past them. But what worked for everybody else, what worked for the mainstream, even in a literary story are not necessarily what would be good for me or honest to me or true for my story. So um, originality is a sort of requirement that you simply don't fill in the blanks of of the form, but you try with your language and with your notions and with your vision and with your passion to 
to say some small new thing. Um, so the, I'm not sure that anyway, the music, we're talking, of, the music yeah. of your own mind yeah, exactly. in some way. Mm-hmm. Ron Carlson, thank you so much for being oh, on the program today. Well, I enjoyed it awfully. It's really fun. It's, so thank you for being well, so supportive and nice. It's been a real treat. Um, thank you. Again, to Brian, thanks for listening in Arbor. And if you're streaming, once again, um, Ron Carlson's latest, The Signal, a novel. And look for that collection of poems and prose poems <laughs> to come out soon. And we'll have you, let's talk again, Ron. Okay. I've loved Absolutely. it. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. How many roads must a man walk down before you call him a man? How many seas must the white dove sail Before she sleeps in the sand Isn't how many times must Henny, back to pass, he's going to roll out to his right Throwing in the end zone for Arrington, caught, touchdown Michigan Takes the snap, looking to throw near side. Now he's going to go far, over the middle. He's got a man, caught, touchdown Michigan! Adrian Arrington, wide open in the back of the end zone, over the middle, and Michigan marches right down the field. No problem, they have the lead again. It's 37-35, to 35. four wide receivers. T-bone and shotgun. Moore lined up to his right. He's going to throw for it. Pressure coming. He's rolling to his left. Still looking, still looking. He's going, he's throwing down. He throws up a prayer. He's got a man, and it is incomplete. Michigan's going to win the 2008 Capital One Bowl as Lloyd Carr's last game as the University of Michigan head football coach. You're listening to the Daily Sports Report on WCBN 88.3 FM, your home for Michigan sports. Hello.